over the past decade, we have developed a pattern of occasionally sharing these personal, authentic snapshots of the lives of GRC members among us. And we call these grace stories because they highlight the grace of God at work in our messy and broken and painful lives. Parts of every story end up sounding familiar to us because we realize we live very common uh, lives in the, the pain of our existence. That strand of his or her story is just like mine. And that's how they bring rich encouragement to us, helping us see how the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring a measure of healing and hope even as we battle and struggle and wait for God to complete His work of renovating our lives and all of His creation. On Easter Sunday, we like to share a story that highlights resurrection power, how God has transformed death in sin into life in Christ. On a day of celebration, on a day when we're gathering with family and or friends, on a day when on average we're looking a little bit more cleaned up than usual, it is especially important for us to make clear that a life of following after Jesus does not mean that we're all cleaned up, that our lives are all the way they're supposed to be, that we're without doubt or messiness. No. The appeal of grace stories is that they're brutally honest about the grittiness and pain of real life as, at the same time as, God supplies grace through faith in the risen Savior, Jesus. This morning, Frank Martinez is ready to share his grace story. Frank's a deacon here at GRC, and his story has dramatic elements, but as you hear his story, Don't lose sight of the narrative behind it all, God's gracious pouring out of resurrection power on a man who was dead in sin, who was lost in the deception that he could save himself. Thanks, Frank. I promise I'm not uh, tearing up already, just allergies killing me. Morning, Grace Redeemer. I was raised in the outskirts of Patterson, New Jersey. My mother and my stepfather worked multiple jobs so that me, my two older step-siblings, and my younger half-brother could attend Catholic schools, both grammar and high. My mother divorced my father when I was only three. He was mentally and physically abusive, aggressive, and severely impatient. I can still remember him slamming my mother against the wall with his hands around her throat. It finally ended the marriage when she found out that he was cheating on her. When she found out that he was cheating on her. My stepfather, Joe, was the complete opposite. Strict, former Marine, yet he was caring, patient, and self-sacrificial. He would do anything for his children. My family embraced him with open arms. I was a handful as a child. I asked a million questions, talked nonstop, couldn't sit still for more than five seconds, and I was highly emotional. I openly cried until I was about 13, and I'm still known to cry at the movies today. I was also the most religious out of everyone. I dressed as the Pope in the third grade. I won first place. And I held services in my bedroom with uh, pews and everything. I used little benches for that. This combination did not make me very popular with Joe or my two new siblings, six and nine years older than me. 
So most of the time, I felt like an outcast in my own home. My grandmother, my mother's mother, Zeta, recognized this, and she made sure to always treat me as if I was the most special kid in the world. She was my best friend and my protector. If I ever got in trouble, she would stand up for me. She would constantly shield me from my mother. In 2001, my grandmother got very sick and was hospitalized. I would later learn as an adult that she had purposefully stopped taking her medication with the intention of ending her suffering. I'll never forget sitting in the hospital room with her on a ventilator as news reports about the recent 9-11 events played in the background. It was an awful, awful time. The doctors claimed she could hear us, but she couldn't move or speak. One by one, my family stood by and spoke to her. Then my, asked, then my aunt asked me to try. Within seconds, my grandmother opened her eyes, turned her head, and looked at me for the last time. I gave her a big hug and cried, harder than I've ever cried in my entire life. It broke me. That's when things started to go downhill. I no longer had my biggest supporter, and I had just started high school, which is a very, very uh, changing time. Over the following four years, my innocent and friendly demeanor started to change. I openly rebelled against my mother and any authority figure. I started arguments any chance I could get. My personal favorite pastime was openly debating with priests, questioning why I needed to talk to God through them. Why was confession necessary? And I pointed out what I perceived as the flaws of Jesus' story. I convinced myself he was some misunderstood normal man who wanted us to believe in God, but couldn't have been the Son of God himself. My theory was that authors of the Bible had took, taken his story and words out of context. They made him bigger than he was. All I needed was a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. I didn't need anyone else to connect us. College became my escape. There I could get away from the church. I could get away from my mother. I could be my own person, start anew, and carve my own path. My first two years of college were spent at Hofstra University in Long Island. I became close friends and eventually roommates with a model actor. I would joke that he was Batman and I was Robin walking around campus. Girls fawned over this guy, and I was invisible. It was an interesting study in human behavior, honestly. One night, he took me, out to, took me to hang out with a large crew of his friends that moved into our building. Within seconds of entering this suite, a short Indian girl ran up to him. She hit him with insult after insult to everyone's amusement. I had never seen him cower before that moment. I thought it was hilarious. Her name was Kristen, and I needed to know everything I could about her. Yeah, many of you know Kristen. That's, that's her well. I soon learned she was as lost as I was, if not more. She came from a very strict Indian brethren upbringing where they don't marry or even date outside their own people. I would come to learn much later that she had experienced serious abuse at the hands of those who were supposed to be trusted within the community. How could she believe in a savior that allowed that? Suffice to say, we connected instantly. We dated for several years. For most of the time, she kept a distance from her family. It constantly put strain on our relationship, and we would experience tumultuous moments as a result. Not to mention, we were also still growing as young adults, learning about ourselves. We seemed to weather the storms, and we eventually got engaged in 2011. That same year, she started to attend GRC. A few months before we were to be married, Kristen sat me down to explain that she needed to be married to a Christian. 
She was starting to mend things with her family, and she believed losing sight of Christ played a significant role in her suffering all those years. It broke my heart to hear it. I loved her, and I knew I couldn't let her go. But I also knew where my heart was spiritually, and it wasn't with Jesus. So I prayed to God, as I often did, to help me understand what I should do. I asked for a sign. If his son was real, reveal him to me. I promised her I would do my best, but I could not promise my beliefs would change. It wasn't something I could control. True to my word, I started attending GRC regularly. I hid in the back of every service. I avoided small talk as I made my way in and out. Smiles, hellos, goodbyes. I refrained from taking communion, instead praying for guidance, because I still couldn't rationalize Jesus' part in the story. The sermons and grace stories kept me coming back. I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but there were two moments that led to everything changing. The first was an argument. What I didn't know about my soon-to-be wife was that she knew her Bible very well. Believe it or not, that didn't come up in our relationship. Neither did her being a 49ers fan, but that's another story. (laughs) In the middle of a heated biblical debate, she issued a challenge. Go read the book of John and tell me if you still believe what you're saying. I thought I knew the Bible because I had to study in religion classes from grades 1 through 12. I even took a few courses in college. Turns out I never actually read the Bible. I only studied and memorized stories and quotes in a classroom setting. I hadn't truly experienced the gospel on my own by reading any book of the Bible page by page. So I read John. As time passed, I could feel my heart softening. One day, there was a call for a van ministry coordinator. I lived two blocks from church, so I felt compelled to help. Little did I realize that one volunteering opportunity would expose me to several members and leaders of the church who I had avoided at every turn. Successfully, I might add. Now I needed to face them and talk to them. It became clear very quickly that all these people who had smiles every Sunday were just as broken as me, if not more so. Their smiles weren't worn to hide their sin. Their smiles were the results of knowing they were saved. They started to dawn on me. God had been revealing himself in his son all along. For years, it felt like I had been carrying heavy weights on my shoulders. In reality, I put those weights on myself because I refused to accept Jesus. I convinced myself I was a victim. I also convinced myself that I had the power to improve my situation, that I could trust in my own strength, my own personally developed relationship with God. It took a deep, much, I took a deep, much-needed look at myself in the mirror at what I had become. I realized the true impact of Christ dying on the cross and how I've always needed him. It brought me to tears. I didn't deserve any of it. The first time I openly admitted I was a sinner was liberating. I finally understood God's grace. I now knew what it meant to be a Christian, to place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, by no means has this made me sinless. Acknowledging you're a sinner in need of Jesus is only a first step. Kristen and I continue to face challenges both together and individually. However, knowing our Lord makes all the difference. That's because his death and his resurrection are proof that God always provides. He uses stories like mine to show this time and time again. These days, when I find myself in a dark place, whenever I'm suffering, whenever I'm feeling lost, I remind myself that I can't do it alone. I need him, and he is always with me.
thank you for this man, our, my brother. I thank you for breaking him, for showing him who he really was. And I praise you for remaking him, raising him to life, and now shaping him into the image of the Savior, and now using him to proclaim the glory of the King. This is just one chapter, Lord, or several chapters in his story. We long to see what you will do in and through him as your glory is more and more fully revealed. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to start by describing a scene from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. It occurs after Jesus has died. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were opposing Jesus, they go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because they are afraid that Jesus' disciples are going to go to the tomb in the middle of the night, steal his body, and claim that he rose from the dead. They are worried because they know this is serious business. They knew that resurrection would be undeniable proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They knew that resurrection would prove that he was truly the Messiah. And even the appearance that this had happened was worrisome to them. Uh, There was a British atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens known for his best-selling book, God is Not Great. And in an interview a few years before he died, he made this statement. If you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice your sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. This from a man who was an avowed opponent of Christianity. This from a man who was asked, what is the axis of evil? And he said, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He knew precisely, he understood perfectly that without resurrection, there's no Christianity. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, there's no point in anything we're doing here on Sunday morning. It's pointless. It's a farce. It is a complete waste of time. Worse, it's a lie. We're pretending, we're saying things that aren't really true. Worst of all, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, you and I are still liable for our own sins. Sin still has power over us to bring shame and guilt and condemnation because we're guilty. Each of us will have to serve our own death sentence. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And resurrection changes everything. What happened to Frank? He didn't just find religion. He didn't just try on Christianity like a new jacket or a new hobby and find that it fits really nicely 
and find that it works for him in life? No, when anyone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that something incredibly transformative happens. It's nothing less than the dead being raised. That's how Ephesians chapter 2 describes conversion. First, by pointing out the before picture and then the after. The before is very simple, verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. It's not a pretty before picture. And then the after, starting in verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ. Becoming a Christian involves this transformation, dead but now alive, in the tomb but now risen, resurrected. That might sound a little bit too dramatic when it comes to a guy like Frank. I mean, look at the charisma, the handsome smile. He, he's such, he is actually as nice as he seems. When Kristen's here in the second service, she's going to roll her eyes. <laughs> uh, he may have been a handful when he was a little guy, but speaking nonstop is not a crime. He was a rebellious little altar boy. Come on, any mama would take that in a heartbeat. Frank's never been arrested. I actually never asked him that. Um, I might be wrong. Surely Frank was not spiritually dead and in need of resurrection. If you were arrested, that proves my point, and so we're all good. Yeah. But here's where our default thinking, I am not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as the next guy. Here's where our default thinking is so very flawed. Because sin is not merely breaking a few rules. Sin is not merely being an imperfect human being like everyone else is. Sin is not the occasional mess up that we can make up for with um, a good stretch of kind-hearted behavior and generosity. Sin is a capital crime of treason against the king. Nothing less. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, that everything that does not come from faith is sin. That's dramatic. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Because you either have faith in, you you trust in God, you trust, uh, or you, you trust in self. Those are the two options. You either trust in God or you trust in self. You either trust in God, you you either place your faith in Him that He is good, that His fatherly affection for you desires what is best for you, and therefore you respond with every ounce of your being in embracing His perfect will in a life of obedience, or you say, He's not good. He doesn't know what's best for me. I'm not going to believe in him. I'm going to believe in self, which will never bring you lasting joy, peace, or freedom. This is why Frank shared with us, for years it felt like I had been carrying heavy weights on my shoulders. I convinced myself I had the power to improve my situation, 
that I could trust in my own strength. Living apart from God not only brings frustration and turmoil and weariness, living apart from God is death. It is death. It it offends. It rejects God with a statement, you are not good or pure. You are not the essence of what is beautiful. You do not long for my good. You are not the source of life itself. You do not perfectly define meaning and purpose for my life. I do, and I am. It's a statement of God in the place of God. That's why sin is not just a little mess up that we can make up for. It is a capital crime of treason, taking the place of God. And yet, and yet, this makes no sense. God the Son extends mercy to sinners like you and like me and like Frank. God the Son willingly laid down his life, though he was innocent pure, holy, sinless, not deserving of the cross. He willingly laid down his life and experienced spiritual death in the hell of the cross, taking our place because we deserve it. He offered us mercy that by faith in him, we might be forgiven and set free and then experience the fullness of what God in his perfect, pure love longs for all of his creatures to experience with him for all of eternity. But salvation required more than the cross. Almost sounds blasphemous to say that the cross wasn't enough. That's actually not the point. The cross wasn't the final victory. Because if death had swallowed up Jesus it would have had the final word. And if death had swallowed up Jesus, how could we expect to live? If it took our creator, if it took God the Son and defeated him, how could we expect to have any real and lasting hope? Death is our greatest enemy. Death causes deepest fear and and, and anxiety. It would continue to hang over us, not only threatening us as it does to this day with sudden, premature, painful death, but if it had the last word, that would be it. What hope is there? That's why the third day is the most glorious truth in all of Christianity. Jesus' resurrection accomplishes final and perfect Victory over sin and death. And that same power is at work when a sinner like Frank places his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Resurrection has rescued Frank from himself. That's his narrative. Resurrection is working even now where there was death in Frank's desires, in his will, in his thinking, and one day resurrection will complete its work in his body when life after, life after death comes. Resurrection is why we're here. Resurrection is why we celebrate. Resurrection makes real God's promises to make all things new. People of God,
Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, we marvel not only that you gave us your Son, but we marvel that you did not allow death to have the last word. You raised the Son to newness of life, and we praise you, God. You say that Jesus is the first fruits, that there's more to come, and that we can follow in his steps as we trust in this same Jesus. So raise us up, Lord. Raise the dead here in our midst and continue to apply that life-giving power to us that everything of sin would be put to death and that everything that you long for us to be and to experience would come alive more and more. We thank you and praise you in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.